0: This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan.
1: And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, True Beauty is Found Within, tracing the origins of beauty and the beast.
0: So this is another part of our Fairy Tales in Focus series and this week uh, we're bringing you one of the best, most beloved fairy tales of all time. Um, I know from a very personal perspective um, it's one of my favourites and it has inspired countless adaptations, reimaginings and classic works of literature
1: yeah and i have to say it's one of my favorites as well i've got a loose cluster of favorites i couldn't tell you what my absolute favorite is but it's definitely within that cluster
0: yeah absolutely um and to be honest i think it's just in general the considering uh, you know how many fairy tales uh you kind of we get introduced to as kids um in sort of there's a reason that beauty and the beast is just so in the public eye if that makes sense um it touches on something i think it's a lot of people's favorites or it's among a lot of people's favorites they really just love this story
1: yeah definitely um it's been a little while since we've done one of these episodes so a brief overview of what we mean by fairy tale for those who haven't checked out any of our previous episodes but if you enjoy this one um we've also done one on red riding hood we've done one on cinderella and we have done another one which has now gone out of my head, which is quite worrying. (laughs) We have done three. You can check out our three previous episodes in this series. There will be more. Um, Anyway, fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together. Um, It's quite difficult to separate them out entirely because those sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world and there's a lot of crossover. And what's a fairy tale in one place might actually be a legend in another.
0: So, broadly speaking, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part, um, even if we kind of know that they didn't happen. They're written as if they are a part of history or have a a location within history.
1: Yes, Uh, morality tales, fables and parables are concerned with delivering a specific message, usually religious or philosophical
0: so to give you kind of an idea just for some examples uh legends uh you have things like king arthur um and you have robin hood and stuff like that uh in terms of uh morality tales fables you've obviously got aesop's fables and stuff like that
1: yeah Um, the the dog in the manger the um or you know if if we're going down the new testament route the, the parable of the sower
0: yeah absolutely um then finally you have uh, fairy tales. Um, these contain fantasy creatures, so um, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, fairies, etc. Um, and do not contain more than superficial references to religion, so uh, or, or actual places, historical people or events. They happened once upon a time or photo long ago um the idea is that they are stories and they are meant to be stories so they're understood as stories they kind of are universal they can happen anywhere um they're not set in a time or place which is also how they dif- differ a little bit from uh folk tales as well yeah. um but obviously there's a lot of crossover
1: yeah, now, uh, some folklorists prefer the term Marchion or wander tale, which is obviously a term coined by the Brothers Grimm, or certainly picked up and used most often by the Brothers Grimm. Yeah. Um, and while we're familiar with fairy tales as they've been written down, and while this can make it tricky to get to the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively male, or at least very rich, Um, fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that and were most likely handed from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter Um, another name for them is spinning tales after all
0: yeah um and like we said there is a crossover between folk tales and fairy tales some fairy tales come from folk tales um, which and some folk tales then will come from myth or will be part of some kind of myth and be part of religion or things like that. So there is a lot of crossover. It's a big jumbled salad of, of things. Um, but for the most part, fairy tales um, also um, will kind of have a, a sort of be original, usually in terms of being a complete whole story onto itself. So, if, so for example, you won't have a fairy tale with a recognisable. Uh, character in it very often, so you wouldn't have a fairy tale which includes someone like Robin Hood, for example. That yeah. wouldn't be a fairy tale. Um, but you do have fairy tales do tend to have archetypes or things like that, so recognizable characters in terms of recognizable archetypes. Um, now, the nature of a story is to shape shift in order to survive, and fairy tales have been shape shifting for an incredibly long time.
1: Yes, so tracing that golden thread back to its roots is quite tricky. Obviously, mm. Madeline and I do this kind of as a hobby, um, yeah. but there are people who have degrees and doctorates and things in this, and they're definitely worth listening to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I've, I've taught fairy tales, obviously, at a university level as well, um, but... We can only ever look at fairy tales in terms of what we've got um, and what the experts um, (laughs) kind of have told us in this regard. Um, And obviously there are lots of different ways of looking at fairy tales. We are today going to be very much specifically looking at it in terms of a writer and in terms of how they work as stories for writers, as is our usual remit. Uh, But there's lots of interesting things to find out in terms of sort of Um, You know what, I'm not even going to get into it There's lots of interesting things to find out So do check out what some other people have had to say about it Now, with that little disclaimer out (laughs) of the way Let's get on to Beauty and the Beast Um, And we'll start with the history Yes So the actual fairy tale, uh, while containing strong folkloric elements such as the search for a lost husband, the animal husband, or the animal partner, animal bride, and the not being deceived by appearances, is not actually a tale as (laughs) old as time. Um, In fact, it's only really existed in the form that we understand it since the late 17th and early 18th century. Um, and it was first published in around 1740 um, in La Jeune Américaine et le Comte Marine. Um, so that's the young American. Um, and essentially, <laughs> yes, it is French, by the way. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, it was one of the magazines that were very fashionably handed around in the salons frequented by the aristos. Of the yes, time.
0: absolutely. Um, and it was then kind of also then republished as well um, by various people, um, and it ha- was very much written for a certain audience. But we'll get into that um, in a little bit. Um, there is actually an older historical source which may have inspired the story.
1: Yes, so. Petros Gonsalvas was born in the Canary Islands in 1537 with the rare congenital condition hypertrichosis. This meant that long fur-like hair grew all over his face and body and this is something that does still emerge um, today. Mm -hmm. It's it's a genetic condition and as I said it's very rare, it turns up on a, a recessive gene allele but you can in theory pass it on to your children. Um, in line with the attitudes towards wild men of the time he was not treated terribly well by his family in fact from the age of i think he he was quite young he would have been about sort of five or six they imprisoned him in an iron cage and fed him raw meat and animal feed because they assumed he was more of an animal than a human
0: oh my god
1: um he was eventually i mean he didn't come from a noble family or an aristocratic family i think he was sort of a low merchant family Um, they eventually shipped him off to france in an iron cage as a curiosity a coronation present for king henry ii in 1547 aged 10. Um, again in line with the attitudes of the time he was put straight in the dungeon where he could be viewed by members of the court as a curiosity (laughs) This was not even considered especially cruel at the time. He was just considered not entirely human, ergo mm. something to be looked at. Um, after the court physicians had poked and prodded him for a while, they concluded he was not a wild man. He was a 10-year-old boy who, for some reason, had fur. He told them his name, um, which they sort of, it was uh, Pedro uh, Gonda something or other, but they tra- changed it from the Spanish to Petrus Gonsalves. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway having concluded that he was actually a ten year old boy King Henry declared that he should receive an education, now this wasn't necessarily a kindness, the king thoroughly expected this experiment to fail, Mm -hmm. he expected he was not convinced by his physicians. he thought that the boy was not in fact a boy but was in fact some sort of animal who had strangely been born to a human woman Mm -hmm. um So this was the nature of a grand experiment, and he did not expect Petrus to be able to learn. Instead, Petrus shocked the court by being an outstanding student. He mastered Latin and court etiquette. He became an important court figure, educated in three languages, and because of this, he was allowed to dress like a nobleman and eat cooked food, and he must have been thinking, finally, at that (laughs) point. He also became a favourite of King Henry, uh, because while he was kept around court as much amusement and novelty purposes as anything else what he did say I think you know we think we forget that part of the noble education at the time was logic grammar and rhetoric and grammar meant being able to shape your words in the correct way so he could obviously turn his words in such a way that he he conveyed both wit and wisdom so he was an entertaining person to have around Mm. Um, so he became a favourite of the king which obviously drastically improved his life and probably drastically improved the life he would have had as a, a child not born with this congenital condition. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, he was now in the lap of luxury. So if, having been hand a really shit hand of cards, he played them very, very well. Mm. And proved everyone wrong. Although he was never entirely accepted either. But no. anyway, after Henry's death, his wife, Catherine de' Medici, became Queen Regent that yes it is that catherine de, de medici the famous yeah. poisoner <laughs> the one who invited people over uh, to weddings and then killed them all but having said that catherine de medici was a complicated person and is not necessarily just the evil stepmother she's often portrayed to be yes mm. she did a lot of very bad things she also came from a very bad situation and basically what was a gangster family in yeah. one of italy's city states at the time um so I'm not exonerating her, but I'm also not entirely convinced that her following actions were entirely in the nature of a spice, a spiteful prank or a continuation of the grand experiment, although some people think they were. But she may have been fond of Petrus, and this may have been a prank because she wanted to see whether she could breed a line of amusing, human-speaking animals. That's some people's theory but she arranged a marriage for him with a young noble servant's daughter, a beauty, by who also called Catherine. Um, Catherine was not told about her husband-to-be's condition. She literally only met him on the wedding day, literally as they were about to be wed. And she wasn't entirely pleased with the match. However, her queen had commanded her to marry and France did not have the same laws regarding... Um, Consent that England had had since sort of the tenth century. Yeah. Um, the Dane law never took root in France, so it was a little bit shitter being a woman in France for a lot of the Middle Ages. Yeah. <laughs> and the Renaissance, etc. Anyway, she tried to make the best of it, and ultimately, I mean, I think Petrus must have had great qualities of character anyway to do everything he did with everything set against him, mm. but. Um, she did come to love him eventually they became very fond of each other uh, they went on to have seven children four of which also had hypertrichosis um, and the pair were married for 40 years to, and they spent that time together and mm. it wasn't entirely forced spent spend time together either yeah. so um, if we bear in mind that many aristocrats at the time, were married, produced children, and at that point, you could go off and amuse yourself as long as you didn't bring shame to the house, kind of thing. Yeah. And that many noble couples actually didn't spend much time together once children were on the scene.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: the fact that they were almost constant companions suggests there was a very close bond between them. Yeah, their lives did not get a fairy tale ending but it wasn't exactly a bad ending either considering the time period and what might have become of each of them Yeah. so in essence they both played the system very well they were sent on tours of Europe to amuse other courts and things but they were also richly rewarded for doing this so in the same way they later had carnival freak shows and things that's kind of what this is the upper crust version of what it was
0: yeah absolutely Um,
1: but if that's all you're being allowed and it gives you a steady income and you can you've you've somehow formed this stable relationship with someone yeah. um, and you're not being treated like an animal as such. It's just people won't acknowledge that you're fully human it's it's shit, and now we would be horrified by it. but actually they did quite an awful they did an awful lot to sort of challenge attitudes of the time, whether by intention or by accident. And I think if you can make yourself wealthy and comfortable off the back of that, and re- retire to an island somewhere, then uh, actually you you've done quite well. Um, the four of their children, uh, two girls, two boys, who also were born with hypertrichosis and were covered in fur, did get sent off to other courts, but they were educated and they were sent off as as no as basically nobles. Mm. Now they were also sent as curiosities. Um, as kind of gifts to adorn the court but it's all too easy to imagine petra saying well i came from these beginnings this would have been my life had i not looked like you yeah um this is what i made of myself we enjoy this comfortable life because of this so you can do the very same thing um i've had love in my life there's no reason you can't i can see him saying all of that to each of his children as they get sent off
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Interestingly, the three who didn't have hypertrichosis, no one was interested in them and they didn't really get they didn't get portraits painted. Nobody recorded what happened to them. No one was interested. So they actually probably were more disadvantaged by not having this rare genetic condition. <laughs> yeah. So yes, this all predates the very first telling of Beauty and the Beast as we know it, mm-hmm. and it may well have become some sort of um, French urban legend or folktale which was embellished and changed and eventually written down. Yes.
0: Um, however, there are other iterations of Beauty and the Beast um, which are much older. Um, now they're different enough that we could say they might have just influenced or they might it might just be that this is a kind of story that people like to come up with or, or have created based on values, moralities and things like that, that people that seem to just be consistent um, but these include uh, Cupid and Psyche uh, uh, which is 2nd century <laughs> A.C.E. Um, Apelius. Ap- is Apilios. it? yeah, Apilios. Yeah,
1: um, the, the one Roman novel that we've still got in its entirety is Apelius' Metamorphosis hmm. which is a series of I suppose we would call them swashbuckling adventures now Mm -hmm. where the main character is kind of like semi autobiographical where he's looking for enlightenment and and yet instead what happens is he gets into these terrible scrapes so it's kind of like um, the Flashman Chronicles but in Roman times Yeah, Um, which is most amusing but cupid and psyche is actually a story included in that now to give a brief recap i'm so, I'm not going to recap the entire thing because the entire thing is really really long and the bit that's relevant is right at the beginning mm-hmm. there was a king and a queen and they had three daughters all of whom were very beautiful the first two were un- uncommonly beautiful but the third one was mesmerizing basically uh to the point where people would come from all over the land just in order to catch a glimpse of her um the goddess venus noticed that her temples were empty and people weren't there singing her praises and got rather pissed off about this and then realized that this young human girl was being praised as as being you know the true incarnation of venus and the goddess venus was less than pleased and we all know what happens when goddesses become jealous
0: yeah, oh, for those who, who don't know the difference, but uh, Venus is also Aphrodite.
1: Yeah, basically the Romans nicked a lot of Greek. Yeah, but oh. j-
0: just in case people are like, uh, Venus, how do I know that Venus is Aphrodite? Aphrodite is Venus. Um, just as a little thing there for anyone who's less familiar with the Roman names. Please continue. Yeah,
1: there, is, there is very little difference. Anyway, um, Venus called her son Cupid to her, also known as Eros in the Greek pantheon, and told him to go and... And make mischief upon this human girl, Psyche, who would set herself up as the rival of a goddess. And poor Psyche has had nothing to do with this, by the way. She's just kind of like, oh, yes, I'm beautiful. Uh, Okay, great. Why are all these people hanging around all the time? (laughs) Um, Cupid creeps in upon her when she is sleeping. And he takes droplets from the fountain of discontent and drops them upon her lips as she sleeps and she swallows three of them and then he really looks at her and he goes my god she's hot <laughs> <laughs> oh my god she's beautiful and he is so enamoured with her her appearance that he accidentally pricks himself with one of his own arrows um, well done Cupid <laughs> which you know is a stunning that you know malfeasance at work this is Cupid here That, that that's a pile of forms to fill in right there yeah. nature of claim accidentally shot myself with an arrow of love yep oh and i'm the god of love this is really awkward
0: these these sound like 80s song song lyrics accidentally shot myself with the, with the arrow of love
1: <laughs> they do um anyway having done that he looks and he's like oh my god i've i've put three drops of dis- from the well of despair on my lips what am i gonna do so he takes um a, a handful of water from the well of of joy and scatters it amongst her abundant flowing locks as well. So, yes, she's going to have misfortune, um, but also she's going to have much happiness as well. Yeah. Anyway, um, her two older sisters make advantageous marriages, um, but Psyche, despite everyone admiring her, nobody makes an offer for her to the point where she starts to think that her beauty's kind of freakish. Yeah. Because what she wants is to get married and have a family. And the king and queen begin to despair that, you know, they'll never marry off this third daughter, no matter how beautiful she is. So in the end, they consult an oracle, and the oracle said, Psyche is des- is destined for no mortal man's hand. Instead, she will marry a terrible monster that lives upon the mountain. Um, her parents are not thrilled to hear this. However, Psyche's kind of like, well, someone's going to marry me. Okay, then. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> fine. if no mortal man will marry me then I will marry this god monster so they take her up to the rock on the mountain and what happens there is very similar to some of the early inceptions of Beauty and the Beast there is a fine house that's attended by servants, there's everything she could wish for and um, and there's no sign of this monster. And finally she goes to bed and a man who claims to be her husband comes to visit her in the dark of her bedroom. And you can kind of guess where that's going. Yeah. Um, Psyche accepts him as her husband, et cetera, et cetera. And she's happy with him. She obviously, you know, she can't see him and she's not allowed to see him. Um, and he tells her that it's his desire that she never sets eyes upon him. But obviously with hands, et cetera, you can kind of tell what's, yeah. what's there and what's going on. Um, without being indelicate Uh, (laughs) and from there it's a basic basically the rest of the story is kind of a switch between later later versions of um searching for your lost husband um and also beauty and the beast you know you have the interfering sisters her sisters come and see her in her house they're very jealous and persuade her to look upon her husband that in me, maybe in everything is not as it seems and that she is being deceived in some way. Yeah. And it's all been sort of... Venus has not been happy that her son has basically shot himself with his own arrow <laughs> and is now in love with the the woman he sent her to punish. She sent yeah. him to punish. <laughs> um, so she's like, okay, fine, marry her if you want to, but she must never set eyes upon you or this great curse will come upon you. That's basically what's happened. Yeah. Um, um it and kind of uh,
0: it also becomes a bit tamlin
1: doesn't it? <laughs> it it does and again there's there's threads of that but i mean that again the whole tamlin thing that basically comes from the woman who's lost her husband and must recover him and also yeah. from the bear husband and also from east of the sun west of the moon etc yeah um so without going into the detail of the rest of the story because as i said it's really really long <laughs> um yeah you can definitely see a through thread here mm-hmm. um from this very early story,
0: yeah.
1: Okay, so a second early story, which probably inspired some Beauty and the Beast iterations, is the woman who married a serpent from the Indian Pancha Tantra, mm-hmm. which is from uh, the year five hundred after common era. So this is obviously slightly later than Cupid and Psyche. Um, I really like this story. A husband and a wife. Um, he's he's quite a well-to-do husband, a, a spiritual leader, if you like. Um, are very desirous of having a son, and yet no son, no child is born to them. And eventually, she prays to the gods, and the gods bless her um, with a pregnancy. Mm. And then she gives birth to a snake. As you do. As you do. And they're they're slightly disappointed by this. My husband's
0: <laughs> slightly disappointed. She oh, like she like how I was it hoping it for a boy.
1: <laughs> It's like she's like, well, yes, it's a male serpent. Um, woohoo! <laughs> Um, her husband says we should destroy it it can be no natural thing for a woman to give birth to a serpent but she says no he is my son i will raise him as my son the villagers will want her to destroy the serpent it's no natural thing no he's my son i will raise him and she stands up to her husband and finally he says fine raise raise the snake if that's what you want to do (laughs) time passes and the snake grows very big and very strong and fond of his mother And uh, his father actually gradually becomes fond of him, even though he's a snake and not a human boy. It's kind of like, well, the gods gave him to us, so there must be a purpose in this. Mm. And the couple are invited to a wedding. And at this this same wedding, there will be bride matches made between other unmarried sons and other unmarried daughters of various families. And the wife says, well, he's of an age now to take a wife. And the husband's like, "Look, look, you persuaded me to keep that snake but quite frankly no one is going to say yes my daughter can marry your serpent son that's not going to happen
0: yeah
1: um, but she persuades him again this wife has got a lot of gumption she, yeah, she's I was not gonna... name but she gets her husband to do whatever she wants
0: <laughs> she, she's got the gift of the gab. she is very good at persuading people <laughs>
1: so while he's at the wedding this spiritual leader seeks for anyone who is willing to marry this serpent and strangely enough all the fathers are like nah no, that's not happening, you can't have one of my daughters, no.
0: Yeah.
1: Finally, he is retiring from the wedding, and he runs into an old dear friend of his, and he's talking about the difficulties of getting his son married, and his friend says, oh, you must take my youngest daughter. She's very biddable, she'll be an excellent wife, she's a beauty besides... And every time the spiritual leader is trying to say, yeah, but my son's a snake. Yeah. (laughs) His friend talks over him. It's like, no, no, no. It's a done thing. My family, your family. He will be like you. He will be as good as his father. He will be a perfect husband. I will send the girl to you next week. (laughs) So he's kind of like, I feel bad about this, but who am I to argue? Yeah. Goes home. I found a wife for our son. I don't think she knows he's a snake. Not sure that came across in the conversation.
0: So <laughs> Weirdly enough, that's not usually something you can tell people.
1: <laughs> anyway, the uh, girl arrives and is somewhat dismay- dismayed to discover she'll be marrying a giant serpent. But she is a dutiful daughter and she goes ahead with the wedding. She will not dishonor her family by refusing at this late stage. Yeah. That evening, when she is lying in bed waiting for the serpent to slither in, in walks a beautiful young man. And he explains to her that a curse was laid upon him in the womb for some reason. We, don't, we never know why. And that by day he must be a serpent, but at night he can be himself again. But he's not allowed to tell anyone except the woman he's married to. Right. So she's kind of like, yay, I married a person. And also, damn, you're hot. And and I think they get on to sort of having hot monkey sex. A lot of these Indian tales sort of don't skip that for children. It's just right there in you there, okay? kind of thing. So they spend many happy nights together. And she obviously doesn't tell her father and mother-in-law that he, her their son is not just a snake. He's a human trapped in a snake form. Yeah, um, because she's not allowed to. Then one evening, the father the spiritual leader is walking past their abode slightly confused by why this girl is so happy to have married a serpent because she definitely has a spring in her step in the mornings Mm -hmm. and he hears two voices and he thinks oh my goodness has she perhaps taken a lover because i know my son is a snake (laughs) looks through the window and sees the girl sitting on the bed talking to a beautiful young man and between them lies a ginormous snakeskin And he just reacts. He jumps through the window, seizes the snakeskin and throws it in the fire. And at this point, the human son embraces his father and thanks him and says, yes, that's what needed to happen. Someone needed to destroy the snakeskin while he was human without him ever telling anyone what they needed to do. And then they all live very happily after that.
0: I honestly thought I was going to go a different way which was that he was going to jump in and be like oh my god you've killed my snake son and taken a lover <laughs> what's going on <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a great version I love that Yeah. Uh, we then get back to France so um, La Belle et la Bête um, which was written by uh, and so this is the version that we talked about at the beginning it was written by a woman named Madame Gabrielle Suzanne de Villanueva in 1740. Um, and it was then adapted by another French woman um, called the same title, La Belle et la Bête, so The Beauty and the Beast. Um, uh, a woman named Madame Jean Marie Le Plance de. Sorry, let me try that again. Aristo names, man. Yeah. Madame Jean Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. So we tended to just short it to de Beaumont. And that was uh, published in 1756, um, and it was published in Le Magazine des Enfants, so um, a, a magazine for, for children. And it is the version that most people are familiar with. So it's one of the key versions. So even though she wasn't actually the, the, the original kind of writer of Beauty and the Beast, the Beaumont's version is the one that has essentially been translated for the most yeah. part.
1: I'm just going to mention a few things about the villainal version, just because I think it's interesting to note, and I think it's very telling who the two authors were writing for when one adapted the others. Um, the Villanelle one was actually novel sized, so it's about 120 to 150 pages, depending on the edition. Yeah, It's got a huge, huge cast. There's a massive backstory. There's a backstory about Beauty or Belle, and the fact that she wasn't a merchant's daughter at all i was gonna say she wasn't a merchant's son that would have been quite the twist yeah. she, was, she wasn't a merchant's daughter at all she was actually royalty but an evil fairy had killed her mother and intended to kill bell herself so a good fairy switched her with a dead merchant's daughter a yeah. child at birth changeling fashion in order to protect her and it there's a lot of backstory about the beast and why he was actually transformed into a beast, how his appearance offended the fairy, etc. There's a, in fact, it's well worth reading. Although, if you read it, you will see that there is a lot of attitude towards the lower classes in there.
0: Yeah, um, it very much is um, of the era that it was written in. Let's just say. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that even though uh, De Beaumont's version is only Sort of only about sort of 15, 16 years afterwards, um, there is a there is a shift, particularly in approach, and, and this is possibly because, if I am remembering correctly, uh, De Beaumont was actually um, she was a governess. Her she left her infidel husband. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and she came to England, and she worked as a governess. So. Uh, even though she did come from, you know, a family with a with a name, um, she was, uh, you know, she was she was a servant of a kind, um, and so she doesn't bring the same classist undertones i mean it's still there a tiny bit but it's not nearly as prominent um and obviously it's a much shorter version she basically was like okay let's just cut out all of this stuff and (laughs) let's just get to the
1: crux of the matter
0: yeah and
1: it's very i won't say it's moralizing but i reread it this morning just to make sure i had it all straight and it is very clearly a tale designed to prepare young ladies for what's expected of them but with with things like fortitude and courage and the ability to see beyond the surface very much brought to the fore so i think this is why it's the most enduring version because as you say she cut out a lot of the classism because she'd Mm. gone from one class basically to another there was also um the rumblings of the french revolution sort of trundling along in the distance there as well she'd seen a lot of um she'd seen both sides of the coin and she'd been unimpressed by quite a lot of it i think yeah
0: the other thing which is quite interesting, um, and in particular I think is another reason why it's very enduring uh, with her version, is that Belle is not punished for her doubts in this story. No. Um, if we look at it in terms of it being a metaphor for basically um, she, a, a, a young woman, leaves basically the family of her father and and, and is then becomes the family, you know, become property of her husband i'm going to use property it's not property but essentially she was her father's daughter and now she is her husband's wife um and yet within the story obviously she wants to go home to see her family and that's the mistake that she makes because her duty is to her husband now not her father whereas initially obviously in the story she's her duty is to her father and she is a very dutiful daughter and now she's meant to be a, d- a dutiful wife but instead she goes she tries to basically go back to be a dutiful daughter instead um and she realizes her mistake but what's quite interesting is that she has understandable fear and trepidation about basically being married to someone that she doesn't know that's where the beastly element comes she doesn't know this person um and he doesn't push her or press her um, he's very gentle with her he's quite self-deprecating um, we could say okay actually maybe he's being manipulative but you don't really get that into Beaumont's version that's not really what it's about um, he's gentle with her he's not beastly um, despite the way that he looks and she comes to the realisation that she cares about him on her own it's not something which is, well, I'll be punished. You know, she doesn't have to be punished in order to kind of learn her lesson, which you get with pretty much a lot of the other popular fairy tales, yeah. um, which I think is another reason why people really like it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it. It's also worth mentioning with the of version is the fact that the beast is not only beastly on the outside but he's kind of beastly on the inside he's stupid and brutish and coarse and yeah bell kind of has to learn to adapt to an awful lot of that and manage him how yeah. to tame the, the beast that she's been married to and that's the thing she has no choice in the matter in the first one which i think is weirdly the only example of beauty and the beast where the the young bride the young beauty doesn't have any bodily autonomy and all the others they're very very firmly saying no it's her choice it is yeah. absolutely her choice
0: yeah absolutely because in the de-, de beaumont version uh yes the beast is like well yes you must give me your daughter by the way here's a whole ton of gold it's clearly a marriage transaction with the father and yeah. the father isn't even convinced that he wants to go through with it she's the one again as a dutiful daughter who says no i will do it because that is what has been agreed you've been saved um and it is very much yeah okay so this is a transactional thing which is that our family will get gold if i'm married to this person who is no one else really particularly wants to marry but again it's her choice she's the one who decides she's the one who convinces her father she wants she's going to do it um he doesn't want to let her go because he really really cares about her um and yeah he, the beast then is actually very kind with her um he is. He's even not emo. Actually, he is he's quite he is quite emo so, um, do you
1: not think i am so very ugly and then also i'm not i am not a a beast of great wit either but he's kind and he isn't he he doesn't have I think what De Beaumont's De kind of saying there is yeah there are men who are handsome and there are men who will talk handsomely to you the beast never turns a compliment on her exactly no. he just he never tries to charm her he just speaks plainly with her all the time he tells her the truth as far as he's able to
0: yeah and he does and he gives her liberty as well yes because she you know she is the lady of the house now um, but what's interesting is also the implication that she goes to him they are meant to be married um but they do not share a marriage bed there doesn't seem to be any implication that they they have actually married which is again this this nice idea that if we look at it as a metaphor they have actually been married she's gone to live with him because they are actually married and he's basically said i'm not going to marry you in terms of the you know the the, the wedding night kind of thing until yeah. actually you're ready
1: um, not, yeah we're not going to consummate this uh and he that's why he asks her every night will you marry me what he's saying is can we consummate it
0: yeah um and he respects her when she says no essentially yeah. um and what happens is that eventually she comes to the conclusion herself and obviously in the de Bourmont version it's basically her saying actually it's better to be with someone who is kind and who is good than to kind of wait for. It. So it's not actually about true love, it's about the acceptance of of basically saying actually this is a this is a good deal. Um, and she then realizes actually it was it was a very, very good deal uh, because it's not just that she's marrying this person that when she she agrees to marry him, he proves himself to be everything that she actually would have wanted.
1: Yes, it's it's like never mind fine address, never mind wealth, never mind what someone looks at, virtue is the thing that truly matters. yeah, um, and while we might not use it in those terms, that's something that is still worth um, a great deal as a piece of advice today. yeah, um, and I especially like the end. as I said, I reread it this morning so that it would be fresh in my mind.
0: Hmm.
1: I like at the end when she comes back. And she finds him, okay, admittedly sort of lying on the ground saying he was going to starve himself because her life isn't worth living without her. Um, as I said, very emo. And she's saying, "I'm." she basically says, I'm sorry it took me so long to realise that I do actually love you. Yeah. I mean, I've said I love you before and that I will always be your friend, um, but I actually love you and I want to live here with you as your wife. So at the very end, she asks him to marry her.
0: Yeah that's that is the thing is is yeah she's the one who's asking the question so she does have autonomy throughout and again she doesn't get punished for that now if we look at the story literally we can say hang on a second he's kind of being a bit manipulative you know say oh aren't i ugly she's kind of fishing for compliments um but that's only if we take it the idea that he's doing it on purpose whereas the way that he's written is that he's just incredibly earnest He's very down on himself he's not actually seeking compliments or anything like that he's just an incredibly lonely person who has fallen very deeply in love with this other person and totally respects them and when he's lying down to die he's not expecting her to return so it's not that he staged it for when she comes back it's that she has come back and she's found him just in the nick of time you know
1: yeah, plus, no offence or anything, but this is like a French fairy tale and they do tend towards the drama.
0: Yeah, seriously.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing does happen in Cinderella. You've got this guy who's searching the entire kingdom for someone who will fit into a particular size shoe. Um, um,
0: I, I will also say, just as a little aside, of course, particularly because it is French, the importance of food. Obviously, food, very, very important. But this adds just a tiny little, uh, tech, a little extra added thing, which is that food, particularly in France, it, it was a very, it's incredibly social thing. That is a, obviously the case around the world. Um, but in all of the times that you see the beast eat um, in the story, it's always when they're having a meal. He's having a meal with her. Yeah. And so there's this kind of this implication which is that he cannot eat um because actually the whole thing was actually about his interaction with her not about anything else. So when she was gone he couldn't really eat because he he had no he had no other sort of social outlet as it were. He had nothing else. Um it's quite sweet i say sweet you know what i mean yeah it adds know, a kind yeah. of a whole other dimension to it as well
1: it makes sense at the time and the whole point when he says on the very first night do you not think i'm very ugly well, yeah you it, later on from their interactions you can tell he's being completely 100 percent honest with her as far as he is able to without mentioning the curse all the way through yeah. that first night is kind of a test will she treat with him with the same sort of honesty and she yeah. says very politely, well, yes, I must say that I do find you very ugly. However, there are greater qualities than ugliness, and I would far rather spend time with you when you've been so very kind and gentle with me than yeah. with the the most handsome man in the land who might not be so virtuous. So it's that whole, yes, she can see what she needs to value from the start, but it takes her a long time to work out what her feelings are.
0: Yeah, and that's fair enough. And he, he waits for her, that's that's yeah. nice thing.
1: Um, I'm going to mention the this is a I think this is basically the Italian translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what it is in Italian, but it's basically Beauty and the Beast. And it's by J.R. Planche. And this is 1757. So literally a year later, it's taken a year to the Beaumont version to travel over to Italy. Um, the small but significant and slightly risque change is instead of asking her every night will you marry me he asks her will you sleep with me tonight or will you allow me to sleep with you I think is how it's phrased Right. and I just thought that was worth mentioning because otherwise it's identical Um, the fact that yeah there's very much the implication as you say that this has been a marriage that's been arranged the money sent with her sent back with the father was in fact a dowry or was Mm -hmm. in fact the bride price yeah. And, um, again, it's really underscoring that bodily autonomy. You know, I will not enter into this marriage by raping you. Yeah. So all these people who talk about Stockholm Syndrome and shit like that really don't know what the fuck they're talking about with this story.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it does tend to kind of be oversimplified. And I think the problem is also there's a kind of a modern preset which is put upon it rather than actually... Um, which if you want to tell a modern version and do something different, fine. Um, But completely fail to understand that actually throughout, particularly for the era that it was written in, uh, Belle is the one who has an incredible amount of autonomy. Um, And in fact, she has so much autonomy that, uh, that she doesn't even get punished cosmically for when she makes mistakes. No. Which I think is really, really important because even if a character does have autonomy, in another story cosmically they will tend to be punished for making the wrong decision
1: definitely um okay i'm going to mention the singing springing lark which is the brothers Grimm. now the brothers Grimm, as we have mentioned before did not want to take anything from a french origin it only had to be german they they were particularly against a french origin put it that way (laughs) france and germany weren't really best pals at this time no um but this was published (laughs) around 1820 um the only bit that's really relevant to talk about is the first half because once again it draws in those folkloric themes of the search for a lost husband the animal husband etc and it follows the main theme at the beginning where a merchant has three daughters and he asks each of them what they would like him to bring back from town one asks for pearls one asks for diamonds and the last says uh, bring me a rope." Bring me a, a rose. Except in this one, it's oh, father, I I should love a singing, springing lark. And the father's like, yeah, okay, it sounds your reasonable. Sounds like
0: reasonable. that isn't the hardest thing for him to find.
1: <laughs> but anyway, he has no trouble finding the pearls or the diamonds, but he does have trouble with the the bird sellers finding a lark. And then on the way home, he discovers a lark singing lustily in a tree, and he says to his servant. Excellent. Go up and catch that lark for me. I don't know how he expected the servant to do that. They don't go into detail. Apparently they're supposed to assume the servant knew. Anyway, as the servant approaches the tree, a huge lion springs out and threatens them both. Mm. Um, they both fall back in fear and the lion says, how dare you take my lark for the one source of my joy, etc. And then it follows more or less the same thing, as in you must send me your well if it was for your daughter then she must make amends kind of thing you must send me one of your daughters in fact yeah. most of them don't specify which daughter it's just that the youngest daughter is the one with the strongest sense of filial devotion yeah and the father's sort of like well i'm going to go and put it to my daughters but i intend to come back i'm not going to let them. that's the other thing i think is a lot of people say Oh, the father was at fault in all of these stories but the thing mm. is apart from the villain of one where he says you must do it it, yeah. All of them, he only bar- sues for time so he can go back and say goodbye before the beast devours him. Yeah, um, and I just it, it. She obviously insists upon it. She goes back and she meets the lion, and um, by it, then it's very much like the woman who married a serpent, whereby at night he is a beautiful young man, but by day he must be a lion, mm. um, and. Then it sort of follows sort of east of the sun, west of the moon type tropes, which I won't get into because, again, this is really long. It's very Cupid and Psyche in terms of here is a series of impossible tasks for your one mistake yeah, type thing. But I thought it was worth listing simply because this is as close as the Brothers Grimm get to doing a Beauty and the Beast type story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We then have another Italian version, which is Zelinda and the Monster uh, by Frederick Crane, um, which uh comes in at about sort of 1885 so um you know we're we're getting (laughs) we're getting into sort of the victorians are really starting to to
1: kind of get it's the battle for who's got the ultimate version of beauty (laughs) um this one is interesting in that this genuinely displays the beast being manipulative the beast is actually a dragon in this it's not yeah or a dra- of dragonish appearance, breathing fire, but the size of a man. So yeah. basically, he's a dragon shapeshifter. This is just like 150 years ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, and it follows the same path whereby she asks for something very easy to find theoretically, but it wasn't easy to find. And the, the beast, the dragon in this, turns up and says, Well, now you must die. How dare you steal my roses? Anyone noticed how keen a gardener the beast is? super keen super super keen (laughs) anyway um the 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 man sort of explains that it was a present for his daughter and he meant no harm etc and the beast says well in that case you must send me your daughter and he very specifically asks for the youngest daughter and once again, the father's kind of, I'm not going to send my daughter, but I'm going to sue for time, tell her about it, come back and and die. So at least I'll get to say goodbye. But yeah, once again, And, m- and she... make
0: arrangements for my three children. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Once again, she insists upon being allowed to go. And they actually get on quite well. She dines with him, etc. Uh, but every time he says, will you marry me? She's Zelinda. Um <laughs> She says, "No, I can't do that. I will never be able to marry you." And he he's very pushy, in the yeah. sense of, "Will you will you marry me?" And she's like, "No." So he 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 bulks. But if we say marriage is actually sex, yeah, he bulks at outright rape. But he's not above manipulating her into it. Because by the end of it, he what he does is say to her there is a t- he shows her her father in a mirror and her father is sick and he says unless it's a ter- it's part of this terrible curse which afflicts me if you will not marry me and become my wife in truth then your father will die and there is nothing i can do about it and she says, fine, I'll marry you, um, let's do it, let, I'll be your wife in truth, consider it done, it's now, just let me go to my father. And he turns into a beautiful young man at that point and explains that actually, you know, until someone properly married him all the way, as it were, he couldn't break the curse on himself. And it was actually just a trick. Her father's fine. Oh.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Don't like that.
1: <laughs> so that's the one where the beast is actually being kind of a shit
0: yeah um <laughs> we then get the andrew lang version um which i mean it's andrew lang uh he obviously translated a lot of fairy tales um so a lot of the english fairy tales that most people are familiar with will have come from translations by andrew lang um and obviously yeah so he translated uh the the bourbon version with a few you know a few changes here and there and he obviously renamed it as beauty and the beast Um, and that was in uh 1889
1: yeah and he put in quite a lot of the backstory that beaumont took out Mm. Um, he mingled a lot of things together and he shied away from the sort of the sexual elements a little bit
0: which he always did he was very particular about that yeah um you also i think get a little bit more he removed some of the passion i think yeah some of the some of the drama which you get in the original french one is removed by andrew lang um because he he seems to kind of almost be aiming it for younger people as well
1: yeah i think he very much was writing for children and he did sanitise a lot of stuff. Although, let let us not... Actually, that wasn't Andrew Lang. I forget I said that. Um, but, yeah, a, a lot of it was taking the two main originals and then mingling the bits he liked from each of them. But you still yeah. get more or less the same story. Um, then, finally, uh, you have a Russian tale, The Enchanted Tsarevich, by Leonard Arthur Magnus in 1916. I'm assuming Leonard Arthur Magnus actually translated it. I don't think he wrote it. Um, and this more or less follows exactly the same beats um the terrible beast uh I don't think the the beauty in this one is given as much of a choice but she is quite happy to go um and then it it largely follows the same beats but with a Russian twist which means that everything is slightly nastier and darker yeah there are others there are lots of others there's a portuguese version i mean once the main one that everyone loved was out there everybody wrote their own version of it
0: yeah um and as we've said before there are you know um elements of these stories which have been found in folklore and in myth for a very very long time um either because the the version was influenced by these or because more likely there is a universal concepts within them um which have meant that they've cropped up in pretty much most cultures you will have a version of this kind of tale yes okay so now that we've kind of done a a quick
1: (laughs) whistle stop (laughs) stop tour
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) through um through some of uh, the history of Beauty and the Beast, let's actually have a look at some of the common tropes and the meanings behind it. We've touched on these, obviously, as we were discussing, um, but I'm going to start by talking about the fact that one of the one of the common tropes is sexual awakening, um, uh, bodily autonomy. Which I mean to be honest nothing kind of signifies that more than than the act of plucking a rose
1: <laughs> yeah i mean this this is actually something that goes back to medieval high romantic poetry uh for example la Romande, de, de la rose uh, Le de la rose which was a famous medieval french poem all about uh in, in a lot of medieval poetry especially french poetry the women weren't really characters they were virtues Um, and it is all about the seduction of a young woman in a garden and it's signified by the plucking of a rose so it's not really surprising that plucking a rose would signify a a change for somebody the fact that this rose was supposed to be for the youngest daughter would signify that actually you are now ready for marriage
0: yeah there is a lot of imagery um the the idea of plucking things I mean even to the common day the idea of plucking I, th- I think it's plucking cherries or something Like that is one of yeah. the common things for Taking someone's virginity or something like that um, Which I'm not going to get into how I feel About that but anyway the idea of plucking Things but also roses in Particular because you have this Concept of the thorns And plucking a, a, a Rose um, Accidentally uh, break, uh, Breaking your skin on a thorn Um, cutting yourself and bleeding for the first time. Um, There is a lot of imagery and a lot of kind of uh, connections between roses, also the colour red, bleeding and things like that with romance, but obviously also with puberty um, and getting your period. Another thing you also need to remember, of course, at the time is that uh, in the past, um, periods started uh much later in fact it's only fairly recently that we start to get pre uh teenage uh girls going through um through their periods
1: um it does depend a bit it's been back and forth it depends how much proteins in your diet you tended to get them much earlier as, as cavemen for example
0: yeah um but you know during particularly during sort of the, the renaissance uh the victorian era and stuff like that also depending kind of what cars what sort of class you were and things like that uh and what your diet was um and just in terms of sort of development and things like that uh the you were usually looking at sort of 16 year old girls sort of between 14 and 16 getting their periods for the first time um obviously as we've said there were um during different periods, different sort of times, but uh it is been it, it's it is worth remembering that particularly for the kind of the de Bourmont version and stuff like that, we're looking at girls who are who are around sort of sixteen years old at this point, fifteen, sixteen years old.
1: Yeah. Um there's obviously the preparation of young women entering marriage and mm-hmm. uh, the filial duty aspect of it as we've talked about. Um, i find it very interesting that with one or two exceptions that the whole young women entering marriage it's being really driven home here that it's your choice and that it's not okay even within a marriage for a man to just force himself upon you
0: yeah now of course there's a double-edged sword here which is that obviously beauty is meant to be the uh the figure in which young girls are supposed to style themselves after uh which is that yes it's her choice but what is she doesn't really have a choice because she has such a fantastic sense of filial duty so there is a double-edged sword to it um but again as jules has said one of the things that perhaps has made the story so lasting is the fact that ultimately there is still a choice um and beauty makes that choice because she does have a strong sense of filial duty. Um, but ultimately, and, and for that, she's ultimately rewarded. So there is a meaning and an implication there. But the fact is that she is still the one who makes that choice. She is still the one who has autonomy throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it also lays into this idea, um, this myth, uh, that uh husbands you know would always just force themselves onto their wives or things like that um or that actually people weren't considerate with one another um historically as well
1: yeah that actually um friendship at the very beginning was a good basis for a marriage that worked and if you wanted a young educated woman to be mistress of your home and to not perhaps cuckold you with one of the one of the help or with another young lord a good way to do that is to earn her affection at the beginning.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think that's again one of the things that makes the story so timeless is that we we have these universal kind of ideas of autonomy, um, of respect and also of um, consent.
1: Yeah. Uh, there is obviously the sub subversion of class distinctions. Uh, obviously not in the Villeneuve version but certainly in later ones thanks to uh, de Beaumont
0: yeah Um, and again (laughs) depending who's translating it or not (laughs) and when (laughs) and when um, it will change Uh, but it is quite nice as well uh, in that really the situation for um, and this is been the popular one which is that yes uh bell's father is a merchant so he's he's of the merchant class he is he's bourgeois okay he's educated his children are educated he did have he was a, he's he was a, a sort of a self-made man so he did have wealth but at the time of the story obviously he's poor through no fault of his own but because being a merchant risky business he he basically lost a whole bunch of things Um, and thus they were in a poor situation but in terms of class he wasn't at the lowest class in terms of the class division uh in france at the time that's worth remembering of course yeah but the point is he's not a noble she is not a noble
1: and it was quite scandalous really because certainly uh, i'm pretty sure this was common across europe but Mm -hmm. certainly the the French attitude of the time was that there was no middle class. It was a t- even though a middle class existed, nobody wanted mm-hmm. to acknowledge there was a middle class because they didn't want the middle class to get the idea that they could climb and become nouveau riche. Um, yes, um,
0: which is obviously then the the problem with <laughs> with France. And again, uh, we've got to think of the revolution that happened and the fact that the middle class then became the ruling class, as it were. That the the, yeah. the bourgeois obviously came came into power. Um and we're then kind of side by side with the Aristotle and stuff like that. It's obviously very complicated. Um and de Beaumont is conscious obviously of French France's uh turbulent history, but also very aware of the politics that are happening at the time, um, and things like
1: that. Yeah. One of the more obvious uh tropes is obviously that true beauty is found within a love is blind. So if you would genuinely yeah. love somebody Um, there comes a point where their external appearance perhaps becomes dear to you rather than ceases to be an issue
0: yeah what i really really like as well about this story and again i think is something that appeals to a lot of people is that this was a love as said before that was built on friendship there was no love at first sight thing which you get in so many other fairy tales particularly with the grimm's ones where it's just a little bit like okay well let's just skip the faff um let's just get on with with it um and again it's interesting in terms of also touching on uh the class division because in a lot of uh fairy tales um where which were kind of aimed more towards the aristo so for example um the retelling of of Puss in Boots. I've just forgotten who the author is. Uh, Perrault That's it. Perolt's retelling of Puss in Boots. He's obviously writing for Aristo, people. Completely misses the point that it's that obviously the fall in love at first sight with the princess with the young man is meant to be the the sort of the middle and and, and working class mocking yes. the Aristo. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and instead uh, you know but instead in this version we have a story where it's two people who actually come to know each other and spend a lot of time and yes the beast does is clearly very attracted to Belle because she is very beautiful but they also have a time developing as friends they enjoy their meals together they are together for a certain time before they are married in inverted commas Um, and that's actually quite nice I think.
1: Yeah, the fact that he speaks to her and listens to her, and also te- not so much tests her character, but tries to draw her out and find out who she is. He's also attracted mm. to her character, and her character is good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And he doesn't think that he's inherently better than her. No. In fact, one would argue the opposite. He's like, he's I'm like apologetic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the whole time. Please consider me. <laughs> Um, yeah and I suppose that's our final really good trope in this is that there is some good to be found in everyone people are sometimes the victims of their circumstances and the oppressed often turn vicious
0: yeah absolutely Um, it's I think the thing is with the tale as old as time as we have said it's not (laughs) technically it's not as old as time in terms of fairy tale but in terms of the themes it really is And it speaks to the heart i think of of pretty much everybody um that we want to ultimately be loved for who we are not just for what we look like um and that actually there is great reward in finding companionship on an equal level in that way and finding companionship which is based on um you know shared you know kinship friendship um as well as you know love and love being a part of that love not just being the passionate i'm attracted to you but also being i like to spend
1: time with you yeah i can value what's good in you yeah which is really important somebody who actually sees you as you are i think is the thing yes okay let's look at some modern iterations very quickly and we've obviously mentioned some of these in previous episodes so we won't go into too much detail however I have to just like recuse myself slightly because I said modern iterations, and my first one is *Pride and Prejudice*, which obviously <laughs> predates some of those.
0: Yes, it does. Um, though we can say, uh, by virtue of *Pride and Prejudice*, *Bridget Jones's Diary* is also yes. That's that's a modern one. Um, yeah, *Pride and Prejudice* is a great is a great version where obviously Mister Darcy is not unattractive. Um, though obviously there is this tongue-in-cheek thing, which is that, is he actually an attractive person? Or is it actually just that he was rich and that's why they were saying yes. he was attractive? If he were not so
1: wealthy, perhaps he would not be quite so handsome. Yeah. <laughs> no, indeed, very ill-favoured. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, it it, it you know, Elizabeth, it, is she actually beautiful, isn't she? Does he does he come to think of her as beautiful because he likes her character? Um and I think at one point, uh, Austin actually says, yes, of the five sisters, only Mary was really plain kind of thing. Um, but it was. Yeah. So, yeah, she she's sort of pretty, but she's not kind of stop you in your tracks. Beautiful kind of
0: yeah.
1: thing. But I... her personality was very capturing
0: yeah i do like the fact that actually when darcy does um kind of compliment make comments on the way that she looks it's usually like it's to do with her eyes or stuff like that or like how how well she looked after she's been for a walk it's like how it brings out you know and it's and it's actually really to do with her character if that makes sense (laughs) it's not really to do with the way she looks
1: yes (sighs) definitely um so yes, the, the beauty in this sense is beauty of character and the beastliness is the sort of beastliness of manner which needs to be modified. Yeah. Um, and he even gives her credit for the fact that she draws attention to things he needs to address and then he addresses them. Um, yeah. So very much breaking a curse for him. Um, I've also put Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is a, is a classical beauty in the beast retelling although many people don't seem to realise it. Hmm
0: yeah absolutely um and what's actually particularly interesting is that rochester is despite how all (laughs) despite how all of the adaptations are done on sort of film because they've got to have attractive actors um (laughs) neither jane nor rochester are good looking
1: (laughs) no they're not i mean rochester is actually considered quite ugly but he does have the benefit of being a man and also quite wealthy um, whereas Jane is plain and poor and a governess, um, which are three very unattractive qualities <laughs> indeed. Yeah. And also being quite shy. We've obviously talked about Jane there a lot. Um, yeah. Okay, the 1946 Jean Cocteau film, La Belle et la Bête, which is basically a classic de Beaumont, uh, but done in uh, this lush black and white film. Have you ever seen it?
0: I've not seen it, no.
1: Um, I do recommend it. It's it does the weird sort of you know the weird dream imagery which we didn't really talk about but (laughs) it does all of that and it's got and yes you can see here that this is really influenced the one we're going to talk about next Mm. um whereby you've got the mirror and things talking to her and saying i am your mirror bell etc um and i am your your wardrobe bell she's got the furniture is sentient and i think that's the first time we ever see the sentient furniture which is kind of weird in this (laughs) this instance
0: yeah it's it's interesting because i think there are sort of versions where it's it's a magical castle and the idea of magical castle we do get that as well in um uh oh the one with the polar bear what's it called
1: east of the sun west of the moon
0: that's it yeah Yeah. Um, i'm pretty sure he he had a magical castle or something like that um where yeah, where it's invisible servants are the ones who are doing everything. Yeah. Like literally invisible servants. And what they've changed it to is instead of invisible servants, it's the actual objects. Yes. <laughs> are sentient.
1: Um, moving on to the version that I think everyone is most familiar with, the Disney version of nineteen
0: ninety
1: one. Mm. So pre Madeline arriving on the scene. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, the Madeline. Oh, my God! (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway, I watched it when it first came out as a teenager. I think I was uh, just coming up 13. Mm. And we went and saw it at the cinema. And it was amazing and magical. And obviously, they remade it in 2017. Um, I guess what I really want to say about this is this is the one that seems to have sparked so much of the criticism about Beauty and the Beast being about Stockholm Syndrome. And I just want to point out that, A, first of all... um, time is really collapsed in that film it has to be it's like an hour and 10 minutes long so they have to get a lot in in basically little montages and songs it's going to move yeah. the action quickly so yes actually a lot of time has passed they've had time to get to know each other we just don't get to see it all yeah. the thing i'd also like to point out is that this is the, the slant on this is really intelligent this is about two people who feel like outsiders in their own lives Mm. finding each other and creating an inside and yet where they both belong and while they don't actually start off on the best foot they do meet each other as equals and I think that's really important I don't think this is a captive bonding situation at all
0: no and what's also very interesting about it is that, first of all, they actually, they enhance the kind of the beastly nature of the beast in this. So it's less like de Beaumont's version, um, where the beast is obviously very humble. Um, uh, this beast is more realistic in a lot of ways, but um, because he's been traumatized. As a young man, he is traumatized um, and uh, by what's happened to him. And then uh, Bell actually stands up to him. She pushes against him. She also makes the decision in that movie where she—he saved her life. She could have left and just left him to die in the snow. She makes the decision to kind of get him back to the castle. At any point while she is in the castle, she could again have left. Yeah. Um, you know, she at that point during the day, she could have left. You know, without having to worry about the wolves or anything like that. Um, but she didn't. Uh, sh- and he and she pushes back against when he's not behaving well, and he actually learns and respects that. Something else which is also interesting is that they, even though they did take, even though there is obviously this separation in that she is the the daughter of of well, he's not a merchant this time; he's an inventor. Um, but she is the daughter of of a middle class gentleman. Uh, he's not a gentleman, but a middle class man. Yeah. Um we she, she they're not poor they don't seem to be in dire straits uh whereas before obviously in the De Bourmont version they are very much in dire straits she is running around doing everything they're they're very very poor
1: yeah
0: um and they've taken that away so we've even taken away the incentive of it being money as well yeah Um, And we have also taken away the idea that it was just entirely filial duty. uh, Because it's not that her father came back and said, this is the situation. It's that she went looking for her father when he didn't, when she realized something had gone wrong. So she has an incredible amount of agency throughout. um, And she falls in love with him. And we see them falling in love with each other in, you know, as as the story progresses he takes an interest in what she has to say you know she she's interested in in sort of the whole kind of the library thing is interesting people go oh yeah if someone gave me a library I'd, I'd fall in love with them too but it's not just the fact that he gives her a library and then goes all right we'll have fun he's then sat and engaged with her she reads a story she's passionate about and she finishes it holding it to his chest to her chest and he's like can we read it again you know like they have things in common i think it's really really it's got to be along with mulan it's got to be one of my favorite disney films
1: yeah definitely um I, I would absolutely agree i remember when they were sort of doing teaser trailers and stuff for it and i knew it was a year off and i just we none of us could could wait for it to show because it had always been one of my favorite fairy tales Mm. Um, so yeah I, it really bugs me when people do a facile shallow reading of it and say oh it's about Stockholm Syndrome it's not well, feminist enough and I'm like you don't understand what you're talking about
0: yeah I think the problem is that it kind of became trendy to just say look at uh, let's actually look at all of these and say oh they're not st- these are not strong characters Um, like it became trendy to sort of dump on Cinderella which we obviously talked about in the Cinderella episode Yeah. Um, and we this was kind of perpetuated by writers such as Angela Carter, for example. Now I'm not saying Angela Carter was doing it on purpose. Angela Carter obviously used these original kind of stories in order to re-examine things because she was talking about, you know, uh, feminism at the time. So she was using them as vehicles to look at feminism and to look at issues of, you know, autonomy and stuff like that. And even in her version of, of, beauty and the beast which is uh the courtship of mr lion there's actually very little in terms of change there's only one little bit in terms of the change is that uh beauty leaves and then she goes into town and she kind of gets you know has a social sort of life and she basically um you know it's less to do with anything else she's not convinced to stay she kind of chooses to stay and then till suddenly she remembers him and then she runs back to him um but like for the most part the story hasn't really changed because within it are all of the elements for it to be a perfect feminist story yeah um just like there are elements that if you tweaked them it could be a story about abuse but the fact of the matter is, is that you need to tweak a fair few things in order to make that you need to actually decide that that's how you're going to interpret it um, and I think it completely misses the point of its of of its origin so you can do that you can decide it's a story or want it to be a story about Stockholm Syndrome or stuff like that if you want it to be but that has to be an active adaptation by you if that makes sense.
1: Yeah it's, it's not I mean we know it's not there in the original not really yeah. um okay uh, my final example is heart's blood by juliet Marillier, which mm. is one of my personal favorite retellings of beauty and the beast and i was a complete dumbass because i read the book and loved it and it's one of the few books where i read it and then i just started reading it again because i just <laughs> loved it so much which doesn't happen because i've got a near near photographic memory for words i was just like i want to go back in um and even though I'd read it twice through like that, it was only when I picked it up a few months later and thought, I'm going to read this again. I went, hang on, why do I love this? And then realised it was a beaut in the beast retelling because I'm a dumbass. <laughs> it does change quite a few things. Um, the main character, Katrin, is running away um, from abusive relatives. Mm. Basically, she's been... Her father has died. She's completely lost in grief. And it's been very very easy for her aunt and her cousin to turn up and really bully her um, including basically beating the shit out of her Um, and she's just not really in her right mind between grief and abuse and stuff so she Mm -hmm. ends up in a place called whistling Tor, and there's a castle on top of the hill Mm. and they might need a scribe and she is actually despite being a woman a talented scribe her father had taught her her uh-huh. sister is off with the musician she married following a traveling life and hasn't been no one's been able to reach her mm. um, and the master of the castle turns out to be a young man not very much older than her who uh-huh. was born with a palsy so he's got his his foot is turned in on one side and his left foot or it his right arm is kind of drawn up to his body and is basically wasted and useless and his right. face is slightly asymmetrical so he was literally born with something that could very well have been you know it basically would have been a birth defect yeah. and is very sensitive about it um and act in a manner that is quite beastly because of it because mm. he's always felt rejected on top of all this it turns out his ancestors have not behaved well with the local townspeople who he is supposed to be ruling, and mm-hmm. that Whistling tour is absolutely peopled with ghosts. Um, and it it also goes down from there, and it is absolutely fucking brilliant. It's really, really good retelling. I mean, forget Robin McKinley and her insipid versions. This is mm-hmm. this is the shit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't realize it was a Beauty and the Beast retelling, though. <laughs> it's like my third my, my second reread it's like hang on a minute
0: One minute and bitter okay that's brilliant um so yeah uh I think w- we thus conclude um the all the adaptations we're gonna go through um obviously there are millions and millions that we haven't touched on uh you know because it's just so so retold as a
1: story and um, late, lately it seems to be that there's two new mainstream from traditional pub- tr- publishers retellings of beauty and the beast for young adult and at least one for adult every single year to yeah. the point where even i'm like okay please just just let it rest for a little while
0: yeah absolutely um but it is you know there's a reason we love it so much um uh, so I guess we kind of to wrap it up um, I suppose you've kind of already answered that Jules but what do you, you know, do you have a particular favourite adaptation of Beauty and the Beast or a particular favourite version of it do you think?
1: Um, I do really love the Disney animated version. The mm. 2017 live action remake was okay but it so- it somehow lost some of the magic of the original in my opinion yeah. um, and if we're talking book retelling then um absolutely heart's blood by juliet Marillier it's just the best and i've read a lot of beauty and the beast retellings and lately i've hated a lot of beauty and the beast retellings because i they, they've tried to be edgy mm. um a couple of them have tried to go down the abuse route and then having made the beast a rapist um basically sort of i don't know rehabilitate him and it doesn't work in my opinion yeah. once you've crossed that line so um yeah, not not my favourite ones. Um, totally, everyone should read Heart, Heart's Blood, though, definitely.
0: Okay, I will definitely add that to my to-be-read list. Um, What about you guys? What are some of your favourites? Do you disagree or agree with the ones that we've uh, talked about so far and our thoughts on them? Um, and do you think we've kind of missed any in particular that you think are very, very important? Do you know of any other versions... Uh, from across the world we'd love to hear from you remember you can get in touch with us via our Facebook our Twitter or our Tumblr both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages now before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week and this week Jules you've got one for
1: us I have I read a non-fiction I say non-fiction but actually it's non-fiction containing a lot of of myths and legends so technically there's a lot of fiction in there as well Mm -hmm. Um, it's called Storyland by Amy Jeffs and it follows Brute tradition of British mythology um, now if like me you are not terribly familiar with the Brute tradition um, basically throw out everything you know about history about the Celts and everything else like that um, forget about the later Arthurian cycles forget about the Celtic Arthurian cycles and the medieval Arthurian cycles and look at basically a different set of myths that came down that talk about a time when Britain was populated with giants And how our ancestors came from were basically um, descendants of Aeneas who escaped from the the Trojan War Mm
0: -hmm. um,
1: and came over to Hyptain as it was at the time and defeated the giants and set up these um, they basically set up England Wales and Scotland except obviously they weren't called that yeah and it's all mixed in together with certain parts of the Arthurian cycle including the story of the child Merlin um, using a pipe to dance the the, the monoliths of Stonehenge over from where they were originally in Ireland (laughs) over to Salisbury Plain. It's a really really interesting piece of um, historical mindset and I wasn't familiar with a lot of the myths and legends in the way they're told so if you're interested in that sort of thing it's definitely worth looking at and I believe she's got a new book coming out later this year as well
0: that's fantastic sounds really really interesting thank you very much and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week
1: yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to Dissecting Dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Dissecting Readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughn.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.